Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Let me just start with this. You know, there's a, there's a sense that the private sector should be stepping forward and doing these things on its own, that when it comes to China's attempts to dominate high industries, that market engagement should be outside the scope of government's role. I, I would ask you, Mr. Atkinson, what are the drawbacks to such an approach? That's Marco Rubio. He's a senator, chair of the Committee on Small Business and Entrepreneurship. He's probably going to run for president again someday. But here he's speaking in a committee hearing. It's one of the smaller ones. Senators are polite and they're curious and then they leave. I went. I stayed until the end. And when almost all the other senators were gone, Rubio quietly, briefly, barely wondered what government can do to help business. This is not a small U.S. business competing with a small Chinese business who see who has a better idea. This is a smaller, mid-sized U.S. business trying to innovate and compete against a potentially small firm backed up by a nation state with the second largest economy, soon to be largest gross economy in the world. That's not a fair fight. So what is the drawbacks of not having some level of government engagement, not industrial policy, we're doing the same things they're doing, but the sort of things we've discussed today, allowing them access uh, to, uh, to the U.S. government, being, a, being their customer, you know, that sort of thing. This is Alpha Chat, a project from the Financial Times and the Rhodes Center for International Economics and Finance at Brown University. I'm Brendan Greeley. I'm the U.S. editor for FT Alphaville. This week, we're not talking about a U.S. trade deal with China, really. We're talking about a new trade relationship. America needs some kind of deal. So does China. But when that deal is signed, you still have on one side of the Pacific a country with an industrial plan called Made in China 2025 to start making technically difficult things like airplanes. On the other side of the ocean, you will still have a country that already makes those things but doesn't like the idea of an industrial plan and so doesn't have one. That was, in fact, the title of the hearing, Made in China 2025 and the Future of American Industry. Brad Setzer was a witness at the hearing. He's at the Council on Foreign Relations. If you're in finance, he is the person you read to understand capital flows among nations. He worked at Treasury during the Asian crises and again during the Euro crisis. At the committee hearing, he testified that it's unrealistic to expect that China will always be okay with being a low-end, cheap labor manufacturer. We sat down with Brad in D.C. and asked first what he thinks the conflict is. I think there's a sense, I think it's a correct sense, that China rigs its internal markets in ways that favor Chinese firms, in ways that penalize imports, particularly in manufacturing sectors, and in ways that are sort of structurally designed to favor those foreign firms who are willing to move their operations, and in some case, their technology to China. You can look at a large number of measures and particularly after the global financial crisis, China just doesn't import that many manufactured goods. It imports a lot of uh, microchips for cell phones, which are then re-export, and a growing share of those phones are still used in China. But if you net out the imports for re-export, 
China's manufactured imports as a share of GDP are quite low, 5%, and they've tended to fall over time. I think that's the statistical evidence that goes with the, the basic story that it is hard if you're a foreign company to sell into China. And in order to sell into China, you often have to do a deal with, in some sense, the Chinese state, get on the right side, make sure that the Chinese state enterprises who you're selling to want to buy from you, and in often cases, form a joint venture with a Chinese state enterprise that can kind of be your guardian protector inside China. And so the, the, the problem is then that China wants to move up the value chain. Mm-hmm. They want to produce stuff that's harder to make, mm-hmm. um, which is something they haven't been traditionally very good at. Uh, so they have a plan. Um, it, when we talk about this plan, Made in China 2025, it's what you're going to testify uh, about today on the Hill. Um, is that manifestly different from the system that you're already talking about where traditionally there has been state support for some industries? There has been discouraging uh, – it's just been difficult, regulatory hurdles, cultural hurdles, all sorts of reasons why it's been very difficult for foreign companies to find markets in China without sharing their technology. Is Made in China 2025 all that different or is it a scary phrase? Well, it is a continuation of a lot of different – Chinese policies. Uh, It's an evolution in that sense. It's not like China came up with the idea that it was just start subsidizing uh, investment in pick your sector. And once a Chinese company developed in that sector, lo and behold, a lot of Chinese firms would buy the product that had been developed by the state-supported firm. That's broadly speaking, that's a story which you can see, say, in high-speed rail Uh, over the past 10 years in wind technology over the past 10 years. It isn't new in that sense. What I think is new is that China's economy has developed, it has progressed, it has moved upward in its technological capacities. And so China now is aiming, if you take China 2025 on its face, to displace imports in some sectors where there was no realistic possibility of displacing imports before. Most obvious and most significant to the U.S., aircraft, semiconductors, top-of-the-line medical equipment, those are big parts of the American export base. Yeah, these are, those are what you just named are sort of three of the top seven exports to China from the United States. Correct. And I, I wonder sometimes whether that's something that's properly appreciated politically within the United States. So we tend to look at a static thing where furniture manufacturing went away and went to China. Clothing manufacturing went away and went to China. What I don't think is completely clear politically within the United States is that machine tooling in the U.S. is a thriving sector. It works. There's still employment in that sector. There's still exports in that sector. It's still something where the United States is better than a lot of other countries at making uh, industrial machines and tools. That's at risk now too. Look, China 2025 may not succeed. It may produce aircraft that uh, not even the Chinese state airlines are really willing to buy in which case it won't turn out to be all that big of a threat. But if China does succeed at producing a a competitor that's reasonably efficient to the Boeing 737 and the A320, that will displace the biggest single export of the United States to China. What that means over time, I think, is a less intense trade relationship. If China is not going to buy the products that we are best at, Uh, they're necessarily, in a Paul Samuelson-style equilibrium, will be less trade. 
how you get there is a complicated question. But it also, it just, it is a challenge, not just to uh, those workers in those sectors, but also increasingly to a, to U.S. technological leadership. China isn't there yet, but China aspires with state-backed companies to be at the cutting edge of most manufacturing industries. Is it fair to say that that's the biggest threat? If you're if you're an American and you have no compunction about being a protectionist whatsoever, uh, that it's that possibility of being becoming of China becoming better at making these more difficult to make things, airplane, cars, medical equipment, that that's the biggest threat to the American manufacturing base. That that's the challenge now. Uh, yes, I think that is the challenge. And then I think from uh, you can think of some broader challenges, which we could get into about uh, potential dependence on China uh, and Chinese state companies to supply parts of our critical infrastructure. One thing I wonder about, though, that if that's the central challenge, that's a definitional goal for the Communist Party and for for ordinary Chinese. Moving up the value chain is incredibly important. Uh, it's something that they see as uh, as intrinsic to their own economy. It's something that they see as, as a point of national pride. Um, and it's something that you can't really begrudge them on. Is there a remedy when the thing that a country in its heart desperately wants, and you could make a case that they deserve to have, is the thing that's most threatening to you? How, how could you come up with trade rules that would mitigate that? If this is going to be a, a substantive deal, it's a very difficult deal. I think the easiest one to think about conceptually is civil aviation aircraft. You can certainly see from China's point of view that China would like to have its own airplane. Yeah. Uh, uh, Chinese leaders would like to fly around the world in an airplane that is made in China. You know, they're a long ways away from that unless they want to fly on a narrow body. And most people like flying in a big, impressive four-engine jet. And that means a 747. Uh, and those who can't uh, fly around in a 747 generally want a 777 or one of the bigger Airbuses. And not too many heads of state feel proud, maybe uh, Lopez Obrador in Mexico, about flying around in something that's about a 737 size. It sort of makes you seem like a small nation. So China's a long ways away from that. But you could see why China and the Chinese leadership might say a civil aviation industry is something that a great nation like China should have. And the global market is too duopolistic. Boeing and Airbus divide it. That's unfair. They just had a historical first mover advantage. Let's catch up. Problem is, that is actually an important source of employment and exports for the U.S. Uh, and if that- I mean, it's massive. It's when you look at the trade statistics in terms of what we export as a share of our exports, it's huge. It's our single biggest export to China, but it's also our single biggest export anywhere. Correct. It is uh, at the core of the modern U.S. manufacturing exporting economy. Uh, it is a central source of American technological leadership and remaining manufacturing excellence. So if China succeeds, it necessarily means almost fewer U.S. exports. Uh, certainly fewer U.S. exports to China, fewer U.S. exports around the world, and some subset of adjustments. Now, we accommodate those kinds of industrial shifts in most sectors. It's a little harder, though, to understand and to accept, if you're a worker in the aerospace industry, when it is clear that you're competing, in some sense, against China's state. China's state has set up the manufacturing companies 
that are making aircraft. China's state is providing the financing. China's state, in the first instance, is guaranteeing demand. The big three airlines in China are all state-owned, and China's state will provide export financing. The ground rules of competition seem unfair, and I think that's the core difficulty, uh, something that uh, Martin Wolf, your esteemed colleague, has called two systems, one world. How do you establish ground rules for fair competition between two economic systems that are so different as those two systems converge towards a similar technological level? The approach the United States has taken thus far in the last year um, has been the deal-making approach to apply pressure and then see whether a deal can come out of it. Would the U.S. be better off making a legal approach saying, OK, we, we cannot deny you your manifest right to, to make a, pl a plane that you can ride around the world in, but we can bring a WTO case for absolutely every violation, uh, every, every bit of state support, every bit of IP theft that we see. Is there – would that be potentially a more effective way to manage this relationship? I think it's a different way. I think it's like in some sense uh, to use an overused phrase, it's sort of too soon to tell which approach will yield bigger results. Uh, we'll see what the deal-making approach yields if an agreement is reached in the next several weeks. Uh, the WTO and WTO cases actually have their own limits. Domestic subsidies are permitted under the WTO. You have to wait until you can demonstrate evidence of material injury. I'm sure that point will eventually come, but that would mean that until the Chinese uh, competitor to the uh, 737 and A320 is flying and taking market share, you don't have much of a legal case. And since the support isn't taking the form necessarily of a direct government check to subsidize every single uh, aircraft, it can be hard to prove uh, an actionable subsidy. It has to be a specific subsidy. It has to come from the government. If, say... Wait, so sorry. I just want to understand. The subsidy is not inherently a violation of the WTO rules unless you can prove harm. Correct. Harm to your export interest or... And then to turn it back around, once you feel that you can prove harm, you've got to show that it was a subsidy. Right. And the complexity of showing that it is a specific subsidy, as opposed to the argument that anyone who receives credit from the China Development Bank is subsidized, you really need to show that there was a, a special subsidy provided to this sector. And it was designed for government checks, for writing a check to your soybean farmers for every bushel of soybeans they produce. If China sets up a state company, and it has a state investment group make uh, an investment to give it some equity capital. Is that a subsidy? It's actually not clear. You have to prove that the terms of the equity were on, not on market terms. It just it gets, it gets complicated. And I think that's been one of the criticisms of the application of the WTO to China, that in the Chinese context, proving a specific subsidy has been hard because subsidies themselves are so pervasive. And then it is very hard, very hard to bring a case saying that Chinese state airlines discriminated against Boeing's in favor of the Chinese producer. It need not be written down. You know, China doesn't write a quota 
and say, we will not import your aircraft. <laughs> I, I it's wish, just the orders go in a certain direction. I wish you could see the futility with which uh, Brad Setzer is shrugging his shoulders to indicate <laughs> <laughs> the probable success of this pr- approach. Look, there will be a case. I'm sure that uh, there will be evidence of a specific government subsidy to the C-919. Uh, the legal case would evolve slowly. And by the time that legal case is brought, China will have uh, a competitor to the 737. It won't be as good as the newest generation of 737s. It won't be as fuel efficient. But that industry will have developed. Well, let's look at what's actually on offer through the deal-making approach. Uh, the most significant one that seems to be verified is that China is willing to stabilize its currency. Is the yuan the problem right now? Well, yes and no. The yuan was clearly a big part of the problem before the global financial crisis. Uh, China was intervening on a rather unprecedented scale to keep its currency from appreciating. It continued to intervene pretty heavily, actually, uh, in 2010, 2011, 2012, even 2013. After 2014, the dollar moved up quite significantly, and that really has changed uh, the equilibrium. Since 2014 and since the dollar appreciation, China has both uh, intervened to limit appreciation at some points, but more frequently intervened to limit depreciation. Now, does the currency still matter for trade? Absolutely. It still defines the incentives that companies have to when they have to choose between producing a product in China or producing it in the U.S. Would it matter if the yuan were to depreciate further? Because it did fall some this past summer. Would that have an impact on the trading relationship? Of course. Uh, did China commit to something all that substantial in the latest currency deal? Probably not. It seems like China has committed to do more or less what it has been doing since last September, which is keeping its currency basically stable. Is it possible that this is an issue where U.S. incentives and Chinese incentives are aligned? I think that was the idea behind what you might call the old deal on currency. China wanted its currency to play a bigger role in the global economy. It wanted to kind of grow up, uh, be part of the uh, IMF's reserve currency basket, the SDDR, It wanted a currency that seemed more like the other leading currencies. The other leading currencies float. The Fed and the ECB don't spend their day in the market trying to influence the euro-dollar exchange rate. And the PBOC, I think, had an institutional desire. The People's Bank of China. People's Bank of China. China Central Bank. China Central Bank to become more independent. Uh, When you're managing your monetary policy, at least in part, to meet an exchange rate objective that comes from the state council. You aren't uh, a a fully independent central bank. Now, there's other ways in which China's people, the People's Bank of China, isn't a fully independent central bank. But there was a sense in which having a floating currency and a more independent central bank matched the PBOC's desire. It matched the state council's desire for a more globally prominent currency. And a floating yuan would match the U.S.'s preference at the time for a China that had a more market-determined currency, and the hope was that that would be a stronger currency. I think the New Deal is based on a different set of calculations. China never really successfully transitioned to a freely floating currency. Its currency has been quite heavily managed. The techniques of management have evolved 
But the fact that China's currency is managed hasn't changed. China never got to that freely floating currency. And with the weakness in China's economy and with the strength of the dollar, the general direction of pressure on the Chinese currency has been down. And so there is a sense now, I think, that both the U.S. and China recognized that they don't want a freely floating Chinese currency just yet. <laughs> they don't want a currency that floats down. And so therefore, you can argue both sides have an interest in having a managed Chinese currency so long as that management is to resist a depreciation that right now neither side wants. For a time, China had this incredibly high savings rate, 45 percent. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that was looking for some sort of reliable asset. You know, we can talk about currency manipulation, but it just needed to go somewhere. And so it went into treasuries. That's shifting. And that's something that I've learned from reading your work is that China has better investments domestically. And so some of that saving is going into domestic companies sort of in the way that it should, right? You have your savings, it goes into, it becomes capital, it becomes an investment. Is that a trend that will continue? How long will it take until China becomes the classical macroeconomic model of a larger economy where capital sort of stays domestic because it has things to do domestically? I never actually thought the Chinese economy fit the model of uh, Chinese savers couldn't find safe Chinese assets, so they were buying treasuries. Uh, that's a story where the central bank isn't the buyer. That's a story where individual Chinese savers want treasuries. What was actually happening is that savers wanted Chinese bank accounts. Chinese bank accounts had a higher yield than treasuries. And the central bank, in effect, borrowed from the banks and invested abroad and took the currency risk. I think what has happened as interest rate differentials have gone down, as China's economy has slowed, frankly, as Xi's anti-corruption campaign made some part of the Chinese entrepreneurial class nervous, more Chinese savers actually wanted to put their money naturally abroad. And when Chinese savers want to put their money abroad, they go into real estate, they go into bank accounts, they actually don't tend to go into treasuries. So the notion that the Chinese savers were looking for safe U.S. treasury bonds never was quite true. Chinese savers uh, for a long time believed in the Chinese growth story and wanted to keep their money at home. China's government had to move their savings abroad to keep their currency undervalued. What's happened is that Chinese savers have lost a little bit of their confidence in China's growth model, and that is naturally putting downward pressure on the yuan. That's what in some sense changed four or five years ago. And that's why you just don't see the consistent large-scale intervention that you used to see. You know, also, China's trade balance has come down. Uh, all that, China has mobilized a lot of money for domestic investment. It's just not always productive investment. So I had this story wrong. I thought that there were more productive investments domestically, and that's why more capital was staying domestic. That's not the case. I wouldn't characterize that. I think uh, you have to think of the flow into treasuries as a byproduct of Chinese financial repression, that uh, during that period of time, China was in some sense preventing Chinese savings from flowing into Chinese investments. They didn't want their economy to overheat. Uh, and subsequent, in the past few years, as China's economy has slowed and Chinese interest rates have come down, there's just been less willingness on the part of Chinese savers to keep their money at home. 
Brad Setzer. Thank you. Sure. That was great. Thank you. Yeah. I don't think I solved the Boeing problem, but <laughs> I mean, it's just a case where but it's not solvable. Are, it's not solvable, so people don't like to talk about it, but it's huge. Big grown-up countries want to fly their own airplanes. It's why France and Germany have Airbus. What I took from that conversation, though, was that China's story has changed. It intervened in its currency markets in the past, but that's not the problem now. Private Chinese saving went through China's central banks to buy treasuries, but that's not the problem now. China has its own domestic politics and also its own domestic economic cycle. They, too, are changing by the year. We wanted to figure out where China is right now in that cycle, and so Colby Smith of Alphaville and I called Freya Beamish. She's the chief Asia economist of Pantheon Macroeconomics. There is official data about China. There's also real data about China. We read Freya to understand the difference between the two, and we asked her just where China is right now in its own cycle. So the main indicators that we have to show that China's in a slowdown, um, at this stage in the game, certainly the PMIs, um, the the surveys uh, from purchasing managers have shown uh, a very sharp slowdown, a very sharp downtrend, both the official gauge and the, the Tyson gauge, which is by a third party provider. Um, so that's, that's what we have at the moment in terms of the survey data. Um, we're sort of in a, a bit of a data um, black hole for the... Um, the first two months of the year because of, of, of Chinese New Year, um, you can adjust the data, but unfortunately, sometimes the authorities just don't publish it. Um, so in terms of the activity data, there's a reduced flow. But even before uh, the beginning of this year, um, that is to say in the second half of last year, uh, you can see that China is slowing uh, just by looking at nominal GDP growth. And that's sort of my favorite starting point for looking at, uh, at GDP, um, because it's probably less susceptible to uh, to manipulation. And just to jump in here real quick, nominal GDP growth is real GDP growth plus inflation. Yeah, exactly. So it's the inflation part um, or the, the deflator um, in, in China's statistics that we don't believe. So, so they start from the nominal GDP. The nominal GDP has its problems, um, but at least I think its problems are sort of consistent from quarter to quarter, um, and they're not quite so uh, susceptible to, to any kind of, of, of manipulation. Um, so Interesting. So they're playing, it's, it's by not backing out the deflator that you're removing their ability to muck with the numbers. Yeah. So they, we, we use their data on, um, on prices, um, the CPI, we use um, fixed asset investment prices, we use export and import prices, but then we compile it into our own GDP deflator. Um, and we use that to strip out the price effects in the nominal GDP and try to get down to what's happening in real GDP growth. And in Q3 of last year, that's when we saw the big drop in in um in real gdp growth um and the second half overall was was very was very weak so we can tell even from that uh even in in the second half of last year um that china was going through this this slowdown and then looking beyond china we can see the manufacturing cycle is is slowing um, we can see uh exports to china from the likes of japan and and korea which is at the the beginning of the supply chain um and also publishes very early in the cycle um so so these these guys are really showing um, a sharp slowdown, even a contraction by this stage in, in the first part of this year in uh, exports, and that's driven by by China. So these are these are the kinds of indicators that um, that we can look at to see that China is in a slowdown. And this goes far beyond the trade war effects here. I mean, this is a reflection of some 
you know, internal struggles that China is having economically. So can you speak to, you know, some of the driving forces behind this slowdown? Yeah, absolutely. So over kind of the second half of 2016 and through uh, 2017, we saw a very sharp uh, tightening of uh, monetary conditions. That that basically is just telling us the, the amount of cash that's available to buy goods and services, to buy assets, um, has, has been growing at a much slower pace. Um, and they... Typically, China needs um, China needs money to be growing much more rapidly than um, than nominal GDP growth if we're going to see an upswing. Um, and what we've seen is is this very sharp slowdown in um, M1 growth, which is the best indicator over shorter periods of that liquidity that I've, I've just been talking about. So this is really um, the kind of the, the the key proof of of or the key signal that we were uh, going to see a slowdown in in China. Um, but the the trade tariffs. Um, um, have come uh, kind of on the back of that as a, as a nasty sting in the tail. And it's possible actually that um, Chinese uh, exporters and importers have sort of overreacted to that. And we have seen a massive downtrend in the um, import sub-index of the, of the official purchasing managers index, which is a survey um, done to, to kind of get a gauge on, on um, the broader manufacturing sector. But it, is a, it has a good lead on China's own trade data and also on the, the exports of um, countries that, that China trades with, um, as in exports to China. So this this uh, indicator that started to um, be badly affected by the by the trade tariffs, uh, but it, it does I'd like to emphasise go beyond those um, those tariffs. The drop in imports that we've seen in in recent months that's probably gonna uh, is is not getting better anytime soon, um, and it probably won't we won't see a pickup in in year over year import growth. Uh, China's year over year import growth into well well into the second half of, of this year. So let's let's turn to the tools they have now to deal with this. You've said before that they're reluctant to use the old tools of, you know, extending credit, firing up the old state industries for a couple of reasons. One is that they want to move beyond that model. And two is that those industries pollute. Uh, and three is that they sort of know longer term that they have a problem with too much credit uh, in the economy. So given that that's a tool that they don't want to rely on the way they did in 2015, and certainly not the way they did in 2009, 2010, what are the new tools that they're trying out now to deal with what is a cyclical downturn with what you call a sting in the tail uh, from tariffs? Well, I think what China's facing now is the kind of the crash of the of the short term with the long term. And they really are kind of, as we're speaking, uh, making those decisions as to as to whether they prioritize growth or whether they they continue to prioritize that longer term um, problem of of uh, of uh, the, the debt build up and the need to, to deleverage. And actually, the, the authorities have come out um, recently and said that they've hit their key targets that they wanted to hit in terms of of um, of debt ratios um, and, and stabilizing um, those those types of ratios. Um, but that doesn't mean that China's going to just go back to the kind of even the 15, 16 type of stimulus and certainly not, as you said, the, the kind of the 2009 post-financial crisis type of, of stimulus. The, the types of tools that we've seen them using um, on the in terms of on balance sheet uh, are very much tax cuts um, rather than expenditure. Expenditure growth has picked up, but it's been a kind of a faltering recovery. Um, and it's not really been um, of the same order of magnitude as in previous cycles. Um, whereas 
tax uh, actually tax revenues actually fell year on year in in Q4 last year, and that's a result of the both VAT cuts and um, personal uh, personal income tax effective uh, cuts uh, and, and broader kind of cuts in in fees um, and and the tax burden for for businesses. So that's the kind of the on balance sheet side of it. The off balance sheet side of it, we are seeing a pickup in the kind of um, the local government financing vehicle debt issuance, bond issuance, the growth in those those uh, those indices, um, the the number of, of public private partnership projects ha- has picked up. Um, we can't really see very well the the government guided funds, and this was a major plank of the of the 2015-16 um, stimulus. But that probably, judging by the other off balance sheet channels, is, is picking up. And also, we expect the the, the special bond issuance from from local governments um, to to uh, to be much larger this year than, than last year. And those those are the types of bonds that are associated with infrastructure growth. So there is a bit of the old guard kind of infrastructure side of it um, in there. Environmental protection and kind of um, regeneration is a, is a bigger plank than it has been previously. Um, but in terms of the on-balance sheet stimulus on the fiscal side, it's very much more on, on tax cuts. The monetary side has been kind of conventional easing, but uh, the the shadow banking side of it, uh, they've very much kept the the screws turned tightly on. So Freya, you've said that the tariff war right now is actually having an effect on China's growth. It's not; it doesn't explain everything, but it, it's a piece of it, which means that the U.S. has some leverage uh, in these trade negotiations. Um, what is China willing to compromise on and and what is China completely unwilling to compromise on as they continue these talks? I think China is willing to to compromise um, broadly speaking um, because of the the kind of the economic weakness that we've that we've talked about. I actually think that the the U.S. side is willing to compromise as well. Um, I think Mr. Trump comes to these talks um, in a politically weaker position as a result of the the, the midterm elections and also um, as as a result of the the very clear message that markets have um, sent uh, that that they need some kind of of, of clarity on on the trade front um, and the government shutdown. Was just a kind of an extra um, impetus to, to produce some kind of a of a win. Um, so both sides come to this these talks needing to produce a win. Um, I think that the trade uh, trade surplus side of this is incredibly complicated. In the short term, that probably they will uh, China's trade surplus with the U.S. will um, will reduce slightly as they re- as they restart purchases of the likes of soybeans and energy from from the. US, um, and we do think that that will will happen. Um, but kind of looking on a on a broader basis, uh, China's slowdown uh, is is uh, cyclically speaking is uh, is much more severe at this stage in the game than than that of the US. So the kind of that cyclical pull is towards a larger surplus, a larger trade surplus for um, China in general. Uh, and once we get over that kind of re- restarting of, of purchases of US imports. Um, that will uh, apply to the bilateral trade surplus with the U.S. as well. Um, kind of looking longer term, I actually can't see how uh, how we get to the, the the stage where you eliminate this trade surplus. Um, China is an excess savings economy, um, and and that means that they they produce uh, much more than they can consume at home. Uh, saving is just a, a, a an, an indicator of deficient demand if it's in excess, um, and if, if saving is in excess. Uh, so that deficiency of demand relies on um, an excess of 
demand somewhere else. Uh, now, China is a high savings economy and, and the US is a low savings economy. So it's quite hard to see how you um, end up eliminating that, um, that trade surplus over the, over the longer term. Well, there, it seems like there are several issues that are being conflated with trade talks. One of them is the trade balance, which is a consequence of other things. Um, one of them is intellectual property theft, the business climate, uh, something that, that both U.S. companies uh, and uh, European companies have become frustrated with in China, that they can't sell into that market unless they either give up their technology or have it stolen, but either way, it's lost to them. Then there's stuff that's even more nebulous and it's hard to find, but, uh, but, but foreign companies find when they're in China, various barriers to entry. Um, and then on top of that, uh, there's, you know, the, the aspirations of China to move up the value chain, which is not something that you could begrudge any country, um, you know, and that's uh, sort of various state support for industries and industrial policy. Uh, and one of the things that I wonder is, um, is it, possible or even likely that the U.S. will be able to ever uh, address this last point of negotiation, which is that China does have an industrial policy like many countries do, and it does aspire to move up the value chain. It does want to build its own airplanes. And it's very difficult for any country, even the U.S., to say, you can't do that. You don't get to be that kind of an economy. This is exactly why over the kind of medium to longer term, I, I still have uh, qualms that this, this pro these problems will ever die down. Um, in the short term, I think we can, uh, there can be common ground found on those other issues, the, the intellectual property theft, trying to find some way of enforcing um, a, a more uh, pleasant environment for foreign country co companies in uh, in China um, and all of the kind of the, 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 the things that have been stumbled blocks in talks, um, particularly because China does want to move up the value-added chain, then there is now a, a domestic lobby um, within China for stronger protection of intellectual property. And actually, the, the, um, the, the, the US administration has, has started to recognize that in certain aspects as well. But this longer-term problem that, that China will move up the value-added chain and is a huge economy does put it on, the, on a collision course with, with the United States. Going back to this idea of China being an excess savings economy, now that the the kind of the old guard industries, which are lower value added, are kind of over over uh, indebted, um, they're over polluting, um, and China needs to move and redirect that flow of savings into investment in um, in the kind of the new industries, which are the higher value added industries, which is going to put it on a collision course with with the U.S. So yes, China has um, kind of dimmed down the the made in China. 2025 rhetoric, um, but the reality of the situation is that it will continue to have excess savings, and they will be be kind of channeled towards the the, the higher value added goods, and that that's a problem in terms of relations with with the U.S. And another sticking point um, here for China and the U.S. Has, has been the currency. And and we've seen a lot of attention lofted on um, the uh, renminbi to dollar exchange rate since Trump took office. And long before that, even with with a lot of the uh, other administrations, you know, uh, calling foul on China for, you know, manipulating its currency. Um, and so the stable currency component of the trade deal uh, that we saw about a week ago make headlines. What does that actually 
actually entail? And does that mean that the renminbi is moving away from being a market determined currency? Not that it ever really was, but that officials now have the green light from the U.S. to to very much intervene with the with the level of their currency. This this part of the negotiations is is one of the most worrying. Um, I think there is enough common ground there for um, a trade deal to be reached. But when the the, the news came out about um, uh, demands for a, a stable renminbi, this was a kind of a um, a worrying a worrying moment. Um, I don't see how China could could credibly commit to that kind of a of a of a move to to keeping the renminbi stable. We don't know what they meant by keeping the renminbi stable. Um, and there's as I said, there's a lot um, on the table beyond just this this part of the of the talks but ultimately a, a commitment to keeping the renminbi stable would be also a commitment to either burning foreign exchange reserves or um or uh, just allowing the fed to set monetary policy for um for china and i don't see why china would want to commit to to either of those things um the the renminbi to my mind is on a, a long term uh, depreciation path or a on a real effective sense. Um, and and if they're going to commit to keeping the RMB at these levels, which is not necessarily exactly what was meant by um by that, that those those media reports, um, but if they were were to commit to keeping it at these levels, um it would be quite a drag on on their economy, I think, and one that I don't think that they would be willing to accept. Um so I, I hope that stability meant um no kind of overt attempts to depreciate the currency. But the problem is as soon as, as any kind of tariff um tensions reemerge, um then there will be downwards pressure on, on their M B and that's just a, a kind of market um driven fact, really. So I don't see how China could really credibly commit to keeping the, the renminbi stable in those circumstances. I mean, in a way, the US is asking China to commit to solving an, a, a relatively old political problem, which is that there was a perception for a long time, uh, a valid one in the US, that China was devaluing its currency, intervening in currency markets um, to sell more goods to the United States. Uh, so what you have is a long-term frustration uh, uh, on the U.S. side that wanted China to stop intervening in its currency markets. And what you have now coming out of these negotiations is an unclear promise to intervene in its own currency markets, if necessary, to keep things at a level that the United States would like. It's kind of ironic, really. Yeah, um, it's. I, I don't see China as as being a currency manipulator in the way that these these kinds of demands um, would suggest. Uh, I don't think it's been a currency manipulator in that sense, uh, really, since about 2011, 2012. In fact, it's been um, trying to keep the currency strong for a lot of the period that has, has elapsed um, since then. So, in that sense, this part of the negotiation is perhaps Mr. Trump's and other people. Uh, other people in the administration's um, long-term bugbears over over manipulation that's emanated from Asia over over several decades, but is no longer actually a current um, a current story. Um, in fact, it's been been the opposite. Freya, there's an event coming up, the two sessions meeting uh, starting next Sunday yeah. uh, in, uh, in in China. Uh, help us understand the significance of that meeting, but also what might come out of it that we can look for in the coming months. Well, the, the two sessions um, 
a lot of it is just kind of um, the, the leaders saying what they have done for, for several years and, and reaffirming their, their kind of commitment to um, the, the Communist Party and, and a lot of a lot of waffle, to be honest. But there, there often are um, quite serious uh, moves made at these meetings. Last year was was a case in point. This was when um, Xi Jinping made his kind of great power grab and there was a, a huge shakeup of, of the party and state bureaucracy. Um, we can't really expect the same type of thing to happen this year because last year's was was just such a large uh, a big change um but with, there are there are several kind of indicators that we should be watching for um to get a gauge of the balance um between that the the aims of of stimulating the economy and the longer term aims of of preventing a, a further build up of of bad debt um also the, the the trade talks we might get some uh some indication of where we're going with uh with those more structural issues that we talked about, there is actually a, a law up for consideration that would um, ban forced technology transfers. Um, so there's, there's plenty there to, to look out for uh, on, on the trade talks side of it as well. In, in terms of the kind of the miscellaneous items, uh, which there's a huge list of, of reforms that we're looking for in China, one that's received a bit of, of talk recently is uh, the, the land rights for, um, for farmers. And that potentially would be a way of, of releasing a lot of productivity growth in the, in the agricultural sector in China, which is going to be important um, in terms of building a more kind of self-sufficient um, economy, particularly with regards to the likes of, of, of soybeans and, and pork. Um, so th th these are all things that we'll be looking out for. And then more broadly, the economic targets for this year. And, and these, are, these are further things that we're looking out for. Alpha Chat is produced by Dan Richards at the Road Center for International Economics and Finance and Amy Keene from the Financial Times. We'll be posting show notes on Alphaville with links. We do want to understand when you listen, what you want to hear. Email us at alphachat at ft.com. I am working through a backlog of those emails to the German PhD candidate who wished we'd put an actual German on last week's episode, Das tut uns leid. For my part, I'm going to start following nominal GDP growth in China. I didn't even know that was a thing. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.